morning. Add my welcome. Good to worship together this morning. I learned yesterday that sometime last week, uh, the body of a 26-year-old woman from Sioux Center, Iowa, was found just off a hiking trail in a state park in California where she lived just outside of L.A. Uh, The authorities report that there's no indication of foul play. They think that she just succumbed to the triple-digit heat as she hiked along that trail, something that she did frequently. Tragic story. The the last thing she posted to social media was a picture of herself at the top of that trail with the, the temperature on Snapchat temperature, the triple digits. It's a a sobering reminder that the the heat that we enjoy in summer, uh, we are fragile creatures, aren't we? I mean, just so finely tuned. If it's a little too far this way or that way, our bodies can't take it. It's a sobering reality. And in Ecclesiastes, we see that the scorching heat of life under the sun really does pose a serious threat. It's a serious threat to our faith and to our joy. And so this morning I want to look with you at Ecclesiastes 8, 1 through 15 to see what God has to say to us, how God calls us to thrive in this life under the sun, in a a world that, as Ecclesiastes 8 will show us, it, it seems to be a dog eat dog kind of world where it looks like only the ruthless survive. So Turn with me in your Bibles or follow along on the screen as we give our attention to God's Word from Ecclesiastes 8, starting in verse 1. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has the power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. 
there is a vanity that takes place on earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy. For a man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given to him under the sun. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet. It's a a light to our path. Your word is a gift. It makes wise the simple. causes our hearts to rejoice. Thank you that you have given us this word. We receive it from you as a kind word, a gracious word, a, a word of help and warning and direction. We pray that you would accomplish in us all that you, Holy Spirit, purpose to do through these words that you inspired. We receive them with faith so that you would produce in us the kind of fruit that is pleasing to you. So do that now. Help us to understand your word. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. So the scorching heat of life under the sun really does pose a serious threat to our our joy and our faith. And in this chapter of Ecclesiastes, the preacher observes, as he's done before, three more vanities of life under the sun. First one is that power corrupts. He says in verse 9, all of this, what he's looking at in verses 2 through 9, all this I observe while applying my heart to all that's done under the sun, particularly in the kind of circumstances where one man has power over another man to harm him, to hurt him in some way. This is a reality of life in this world that people use power to control others and coerce others and they, they use it to help themselves and to hurt others. So that kind of use of power really is a blasphemous misuse of influence. It's blasphemous because it claims divine prerogatives that God alone has. Look at Ecclesiastes 8.3. The king does whatever he pleases. That's the kind of language that is only used elsewhere in Scripture to speak of God. Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. There are people who take their power and they act with it in a godlike kind of way. Look at verse 4. The word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? The exact language that is used to describe God in Daniel 4.35. God does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God has power like this, but humans want that kind of power. And so in sin, human beings fail to acknowledge that power is ultimately given by God, and so instead we assert ourselves as God. And this is the original sin in the garden, right? The serpent said to Adam and Eve, you will be like God yourselves. So in Ecclesiastes 8, the preacher is looking particularly at the realm of political power. He's talking about the king and how should you live when you are under this kind of political power. 
But even in a society like ours, political power is easily corrupted, isn't it? I mean, legitimate governing authority is rightly used to coerce evildoers, to punish those who do evil. But the corruption of power is to wield it to force everyone to do whatever you want. We just heard that this summer, uh, a city ordinance in Seattle went into effect, banning the use of plastic straws. It's a $200 fine for any restaurant that gives out a plastic straw. So coercive power to control every aspect of life. I saw that also into effect this summer in the city of Boston. It is illegal for restaurants to put soda on a kid's menu. Insanity in this world that we live in. But that's what power tends to do, to take power over every aspect of everybody else's lives to accomplish your own agenda. So we even see in our culture that even between liberals and conservatives, while they might disagree on their ends that they're aiming at, the majority of people just think that's what power is for, to force people to do what you want them to do. But it's not just restricted to the political world, is it? I mean, all throughout life, other people oftentimes have the kind of authority to make decisions that can make you or break you. You might have a boss who has the authority to hire you or fire you. That could do great harm. A, A landlord who has the ability to approve your application and give you a place to live or evict you, or a banker who can approve that loan you applied for or deny it, business partner who could rip you off, a teacher who could pass you or fail you, a spouse or a parent who could either love you or abuse you. And so this is what the preacher says, man's trouble, and it lies heavy upon him. It it raises this question Can you really rejoice? Can you actually find joy in a world where at any moment anyone else might actually have the power to harm you and do you great evil? It leads to his observation of a, a second vanity. That the wicked who use power this way, it seems like it works. The wicked actually prosper. Verse 10, then I saw the wicked buried. They, the wicked, they used to go in and out of the holy place. And they were, the ESV says they were praised, but most of the Hebrew manuscripts say they were forgotten in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. So he turns his observation and he looks at the funerals of these wicked people who oppress others. They were known for their wickedness. They were hypocrites going in and out of the temple and they got away with it. They died successful in their wickedness. They were given a proper burial. There was a ceremony for them. There was some celebration of them. And then they were forgotten. Meaning, there was no punishment. There was never a verdict. There was no justice ever done. They got away with all of it. They never had to answer for their crimes. And since they got away with it, what happens to everybody else in a society like that? Well, other people are emboldened to try to advance themselves by those means. Verse 11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. That's how it works in all of us. People will do wrong if they think they can do it and get away with it. We've all experienced this probably in a setting like driving down the highway, thinking, I could get home a little faster People will speed 
if they don't see a speed trap. But you have that moment where you see the cruiser up ahead and you just have this panic and you tap on the brakes and you think, oh, you, you would speed if you think you can get away with it until you see there's a cop there and you know, I probably won't get away with it. And suddenly that brings you into check. In a godly society, justice is swift, but otherwise it looks like wickedness actually works. And so the preacher says in verse 12, a sinner does evil a hundred times and he prolongs his life. He gets ahead. I mean, you call it whatever you want. We have lots of terms to describe this reality of life under the sun. Might makes right. Dog eat dog. Survival of the fittest. That means this is a cutthroat world. People are ruthless and heartless, and that's just what it takes to survive, to make money, to get by. That's, if, if other people are playing dirty, you've got to play dirty to take care of yourself, right? I mean, it really looks like, from one perspective, like a, a zero-sum world. If I'm going to win, somebody else has to lose. So the preacher turns his attention to a related vanity in verse 14 there's a vanity that takes place on earth but there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous i said that this also is vanity he bookends this one with this vanity life is not fair Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. It just doesn't make sense. And my guess is you've lamented this at some point in your life too. That Back to speeding. You probably know some guy who speeds all the time and never gets pulled over for it. You just dutifully obey the law and drive the speed limit. And that one time that you just kind of forgot what you were doing and you were just a few miles over, you got caught. How is that fair? Maybe something more serious. Maybe you struggle with infertility. We've had a miscarriage, or in our case, we've had this thought. We have sons with this severe disability, and then, then we see a, a mom with healthy kids in the back seat smoking in the car with the windows up, and we just think, how is that fair? How, how come they have healthy kids? We, we would take care of them. It just doesn't seem fair. Or you bend over backwards to serve people, to be honest and fair in your work, and people just take advantage of it. Stab you in the back, take their business to somebody else who ends up ripping them off in the end. These are all realities of life under the sun, and I say that they're dangerous because they tempt the righteous to despair and discouragement. These are realities that tempt us to be discouraged. They may cause tension at one point or another in life, some kind of confusion as we look at the world and we're saying, I'm I'm looking at God's word, trying to live my life as God says here. I'm trusting his word, but the world I see, it just doesn't look like it works. So how am I supposed to live in this cutthroat, dog-eat-dog world? In the worst case, these realities tempt the people of God, to turn away from God and join the wicked. If you can't beat them, join them. Psalm 73 is a reminder that righteous people really do struggle with these kinds of doubts. And so I think this is a kind word from God because even if it's not a doubt that you struggle with this morning, at some point in your life when you see these kinds of realities, this doubt may come on. And so God means to prepare you and equip you to persevere in the faith. Listen to This psalmist in Psalm 73, 
But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? Because I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. And they say, listen to the godlessness of their attitude. They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? There must not be because look at what we're doing and we're getting away with it and he hasn't struck us down yet. Behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. And the psalmist says, I almost slipped when I looked at that reality. Verse 13, all in vain. This is the unbelieving thought he has. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Here I am trying to walk in God's ways and look at them prospering. And so that's the question Ecclesiastes 8 is answering. Can the righteous actually survive the wicked? Is it possible for you to actually find joy in your toil when the reality is some jerk with power could ruin your life in a moment? And wickedness really does look like it works. And you might live a godly life all your days only to have some heartbreaking calamity fall upon you that really looks like it should have fallen on some wicked person. How do you survive among the, the fittest? And the, the message we've been seeing in the book of Ecclesiastes is that what you and I need is the gift of God. We need God's gift. Remember this gift? Remember how he, the preacher described it in chapter 2, 26? To the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. That's a gift from God. Remember how he said in chapter 3, there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. This is God's gift to man. Or chapter 5, 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. That's the gift of God. Does it work in this life? Does it actually work when these kinds of vanities surround us? There will be wicked people who may do you harm in life. But according to Ecclesiastes 8, 1 through 15, the gift of God really does make it possible for you to persevere in three things. You can, by God's gift, continue to do good anyway, all the days of your life. You can, by God's gift, keep living by faith anyway and you really can rejoice anyway that that's my main point this morning to motivate you to convince you to to persevere in good works and in faith and in joy no matter how fruitful wickedness looks and no matter how futile righteousness feels let's run through those three things quickly number one keep doing good that's what the preacher says to you here in ecclesiastes 8 to, to those under corrupt power he commends quiet obedience and he warns against doing evil. He, he commends quietly doing good and he warns don't do evil. Verse 2, I say keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Verse 5, whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing. 
Verse 3, do not take your stand in an evil cause. No matter what, no matter how it looks like it's working in the world, you just keep doing what's right and don't take your stand in an evil thing. In this world, God calls you to submit to human authorities, to be busy doing good. This very principle that the preacher holds out in this enigmatic book in Ecclesiastes, we see in the New Testament so clearly when Peter writes to suffering Christians who are oppressed and marginalized and persecuted for their faith, living under a pagan empire who is ruthless in his use of power, Peter can write in chapter 2, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God. Anytime you come across a passage like that in Scripture, I mean, so often people are we're saying things like, I just want to know what God's will is for my life. What does God want me to do? And he tells us so clearly in his word, here it is, this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So live as people who are free. No matter what authority over you others have, you are free in Christ. So live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a, a cover-up for evil or an excuse to do as you please, but living as servants of God. So honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Paul instructs us to pray for those in positions of authority. He says in 1 Timothy 2.2, for kings and for all in high positions, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That's the kind of life we want to live, and so that's why we pray for those in authority, that we might continue just quietly going about what God has called us to do. So while God calls us to submit to human authorities, no, no human authority is absolute. That's a blasphemous thing that is a a corrupt thought that comes into the minds of those who get power when they imagine their power is absolute. Only God's authority is absolute. So we obey God. And whenever government requires us to do something that God has not forbidden or prohibited, then we can do that, even if it means suffering. But to do that requires wisdom. And so the preacher says in verse 1, who's like the wise? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. He says in verse 5, the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. See, wisdom is what we need, and that's what God gives us graciously as his gift. Wisdom gives us the ability to rightly interpret the riddles of life so that we know how to respond in those tough situations where people have some authority over us that may do us harm. We need wisdom for that. Because just being sinned against never justifies sinning in response. And that's the temptation. Somebody else sins against us. We feel like we were treated wrongly. We feel like that just gives us permission to do whatever we want in response. It takes wisdom from God to know how to respond in God-honoring ways that come from faith when somebody else is doing wrong to us. And the preacher says wisdom actually comes out your face. That's incredible. Verse 1, wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. We like to think that the condition of our heart is this thing we can keep secret and hide from each other. The attitudes of our heart is just not. It comes out our faces, 
our facial expressions, our demeanors, that rolling of the eyes, that sideways glance. Those are the things that are a clue to everybody else, the condition of our heart. But when wisdom, the wisdom of God, gets a hold of us, it actually changes our countenance and our demeanor around others. That's what the fruit of God looks like. So how do you get that wisdom? You you get it from God. To the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge. So ask him for wisdom. Have you received that gift? Are you seeing manifestations of the wisdom of God in your varied relationships and responsibilities? It's, it's evidenced in your countenance and your demeanor toward those around you and those in authority over you, this gift of God. It, it's evidenced in your dedication to pray for those in authority over you that you may continue leading a quiet, peaceful life. It, it's evidenced in humble submission to every directive you receive that doesn't require you to sin. It's evidence in your discernment and knowing when to speak up and when to be silent. This is a gracious gift God gives. And in all of this, Jesus is your example. Jesus lived this reality, this vanity under the sun. When he stood before Pilate in John 19, 10, Pilate said to him, do you not know that I have the authority over you to release you and the authority to crucify you? I could make you or break you. I have a power to do you harm. Don't you realize that? And Jesus' response to Pilate was, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above as a gift. So what did Jesus do? He entrusted himself to God who judges justly. And Peter says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Logan prayed from Isaiah 53 this morning where Isaiah writes, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent. He opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away, cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. I mean, What human mind could have ever imagined that in the wisdom of God, this very corruption of power that we we lament would become the glorious way that our sins would be paid for through the suffering of the Son of God under a man who had power to do him harm. So we can, by faith, trusting in Christ, keep doing good. You can also keep trusting The preacher urges you to continue walking in the fear of the Lord in reverent faith. He says in verse 12, I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. So if you haven't caught this yet, Ecclesiastes continually deals with these these tensions, these realities of life that create gaps they, they look like contradictions to us at first, right? The, the people of God profess to believe one thing, then we look at the reality of life under the sun, and it looks different than what we say we know by faith. How do we deal with that? Look at three of these tensions right here in chapter 8. He says in verses 5 and 6, the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. And then he turns around in verse 7 and says, he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? Well, which is it? Does the wise heart know or not know? How much knowledge do we actually have? He says in verse 12, a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. But he says in verse 13, 
but it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days. So does he prolong his days or does he not? He says in verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on the earth. And then his conclusion of the whole thing, verse 15, so I commend joy. There is a vanity, joy. What do we do with these tensions? He, he doesn't resolve them. That's what bothers people. This is why a lot of Christians come to the book of Ecclesiastes and say, I don't know if this should be in the Bible. I certainly am not planning to read it again anytime soon. That's confusing. He doesn't resolve them, and yet by not resolving these riddles, the preacher is actually modeling for us how we are to live under the sun. That is, by faith. This is what it looks like to live by faith. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we walk by faith, not by sight. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen, Paul says, they're transient. They are a vapor, a mist, a vanity under the sun. But the things that are seen, unseen, excuse me, are eternal. So Solomon, how can he look at bad things happening to good people and legitimately say, yet I know it will be well with the righteous, with those who fear God? It looks like folly, this way of living by faith. It just doesn't make sense to the unbeliever, which is why Mark Twain said something like, faith is believing what you, just, you know just ain't so. Faith is believing what you know ain't so. Or another wise philosopher, Archie Bunker, said, faith is something you believe that nobody in his right mind would ever believe. So is the preacher just turning a blind eye saying, look, I know this is what's real, but I'm just going to ignore it anyway. Now, faith is not blissful ignorance. It's learning to see that life under the sun is actually, ultimately, life under God. Faith isn't wishful thinking. It's clear perspective. It's by faith alone that you can look at these realities and still see that whatever success and whatever prosperity the wicked appear to enjoy, it's all a vapor. And all of these complexities of life under the sun, they're, they're momentary, but your soul is eternal. And so by faith, we, we will not be so short-sighted to throw away our eternal confidence because some momentary irritation bothered us. That's what faith does in our hearts. This is how Asaph, the psalmist who wrote Psalm 73, this is how he recovered from his near backsliding. He says in verses 16 and 17 of that psalm, but when I thought how to understand this, that is that the wicked are fat and sleek and happy and rich, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God and then I discovered their end. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you, he says in verse 25. Nothing under the sun that I desire besides you. Only the eyes of faith can see and say, there is nothing under the sun that I desire besides you. So how can you actually know, not just in a wishful way, but how do you actually know that it will be well with those who fear God? You and I have an advantage Solomon didn't have. We know 
beyond the shadow of a doubt that it will be well with all who fear God because it is well with Christ who feared God perfectly. And though he died, God raised him up and loosed the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so God, in his faithfulness to his promise, would not let his Holy One see corruption. And so when we're tempted to doubt, we can say like Solomon, yet I know that it will be well with me as I trust him, no matter what I see under the sun. And so as we continue quietly doing good, by faith, then we can keep on rejoicing where Solomon concludes, and I commend joy. What a verse. I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. This is the the conclusion that Solomon keeps repeating. And it, it continues to be a little bit surprising every time he brings it up again. Because he always brings it up after looking at something that you just... You're like, okay, I'm tracking with the argument. I'm tracking with the the logic. How did you get there? How did you get to joy again? I mean, who has time for that? Shouldn't we be depressed and shouldn't we be fearful and shouldn't we be opposing tyrannical government and freaking out about corrupt corporations and the evils of Wall Street? And shouldn't that be our concern? Not according to the preacher. And he wasn't even living on this side of God's greatest work of redemption. From this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, you and I get to look at these vanities under the sun with a clarity Solomon himself didn't even have. Look at Ecclesiastes 8.8 where he says, No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war. That is, there's no way to dodge the draft of death. You can't hire a substitute to go fight that battle for you. You can't escape death. Even kings and leaders who blasphemously wield power to the hurt of others stand powerless in the face of death. And yet, there was one man who did have the power to retain the spirit. And what did he do? He hung on the cross and he willingly gave up his spirit and breathed his last There was one man who had power over the day of death and he willingly laid down his life and took it up again. There was one man who did conquer death to give you a discharge from this war so that the battle's over and you can say with him, O death, where is your victory? That's how you can sit down and eat your meal and rejoice under this crazy sun. That's how you can get up tomorrow and go back to work and just keep toiling with joy. Look at verse 14. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. There are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. This is a real trouble. Man's trouble lies heavy on him. But this vanity is preaching the gospel to us. 
which means all of the vanities of life under the sun are preaching the gospel to us. It happened to one righteous man according to what your sins deserve so that it might happen to you according to what his righteousness deserved. The righteous son of God became sin for you so that you might become the very righteousness of God. And if that greatest vanity of them all turns out to be the most glorious reality that we've ever seen, then, then you need not fear anything. You can know for sure that God can and he will turn every other vanity, every other vain thing to maximize your joy as you trust him. So when you feel perplexed, when you feel confused or frustrated, when you read headlines and your blood pressure boils, when somebody wrongs you, and you just know life is not fair, when it looks like the wicked prosper and your heart is enticed in that direction, look again at the enigma of the cross. Look there and marvel that you are the wicked one to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. By God's grace, as you repent and believe and treasure Christ, and God treats you not as your sins deserve, but according to the deeds of Christ. So that's the answer that God in his grace gives us in Ecclesiastes 8. That's how you survive in this dog-eat-dog world. Knowing by faith the reality that Darwin was wrong. It's not the strong who survive. It's the meek who inherit the earth. It's the meek who inherit the earth. God the Father has given to Christ, the meek one, the inheritance of the nations, and you are in him by faith. So just keep quietly doing good. Keep growing in wisdom. Keep trusting every word that comes from the mouth of God and not your own limited interpretation of life in this world. And then do what the preacher says sometime this week. Just make a nice meal. And linger over the process and sit down to eat and to drink and just breathe in the aromas of the food and savor the taste and slow down long enough to enjoy the fleeting gifts of God that he gives us to enjoy. These are gifts and after all of it, just throw your head back and laugh because that's God's gift to you. Joy in the toil and you know how the story ends. Let's pray. Thank you, God. Oh, thank you, Father, for the gift that you give your people through Christ, the only righteous one. Our sins, they were many. But your mercy has proven to be exceedingly more. And your kindness to us is more than we could fathom. Give us this gift. Father, would you give that gift to your people this morning? As we wait on you, as we ask you, we know that you delight to give us in response to asking. And so we ask for wisdom. We ask for this gift of joy in the toil. We ask for eyes to see the things that are unseen so that we might enjoy to the fullest the 
even the fleeting gifts you give us in this life. And may Christ be magnified in us as we look to Him and imitate Him by Your help. And let it be clear to those around us, to all those we know and love who are stuck in wickedness, still convinced that evil is the way to get ahead and by wickedness they could somehow escape your judgment. Oh God, let it be seen clearly in us, these glorious truths of the gospel, that many more who are lost might be saved by your work, for your glory, for their joy. In Jesus' name, amen.